Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the Sira chapter number 24. We are discussing the life of Prophet Muhammad wasallam, And as I mentioned before, the Islamic History Exclusive podcast is an exclusive podcast only for subscribers to our Patreon subscribers for the Islamic History podcast. We'll, we will be discussing some of the events of the beginning of the fifth year of the Hijrah. And as I mentioned in the last episode, this was a very important year. This was the beginning of a turning point for the Muslims. Up until this time, they were a small minority, very small, really constantly endangered minority. But things really began to change in this year. The strength and the and the influence and the prestige of the Muslims in, the, in Arabia began to grow. Meanwhile, while the Muslims were getting stronger and more powerful and more influential, influential, the Quraysh were beginning to weaken in Mecca, and people were beginning to having to have doubts about how strong the Quraysh really were. And much of this, much of this change in attitude about the Muslims is all about one particular event during the fifth year of the Hijrah, and that was. The Battle of the Trench, the, ba- um, the Battle of Al-Khandaq. This battle significantly improved the Muslim status in Arabia and also fundamentally changed the way the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam had uh, would approach battle going forward. And we will discuss all this soon, inshallah. There are also other major events that happened during this year. Of course, the Battle of, of uh, Al-Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench, is perhaps the most important thing. But there's another very important event which I want to discuss just a little bit. That will be the Prophet's marriage to Zainab bint Jash. Zainab bint, Zainab bint Jash appears in many stories of the Prophet's lifetime. We discuss some of them, and we will continue to discuss them as we go forward. But um, basically, let me just tell you a little, about, a little bit about this marriage. Uh, Zainab bint Josh, she had been previously married to the Prophet's adopted son, Zayd ibn Haditha. This event was very important because it was very controversial at the time. It was seen as taboo in um, Arab society, and I guess probably even in modern Western society, for a person to marry their adopted son's wife. It was seen wrong to do. Um, then as now, in Western society, when you adopt someone, they become your son in everything but the flesh. They are pretty much a son in almost every single way. They can't marry a biological daughter. Um, it's basically become, they become like your son. Just like in modern Western society, when you adopt someone, according to the law, according to the legality, that person is your son or daughter. It was very similar in Arab society at the time. But the Prophet, he uh, did marry Zainab, even though she had been previously married to Zaid. And that started a whole bunch of rumors and backbitings. Very bad things uh, were said about Prophet Muhammad. A lot of questions were asked about him, especially from the Quraysh. However, I'm not going to talk about this that much. (laughs) Not in this episode. That's because I have covered this story extensively in season one of the Islamic History Podcast. And if you're listening to this audio right now, inshallah, you will still get access to that story. Um, it will be released eventually. We are now in um, roughly we are now in September 2018. If you can wait until November 2nd, 2018, the episode on 
um, Zaid and Zainab and Prophet Muhammad Sassam that was originally released way back in 2014, 2015 of the Islamic History Podcast, you're going to get that also. It's scheduled to be released in the feed on November 2nd. So if you're listening to this before November 2nd, 2018, just wait a few weeks. It will be coming out, inshallah, and you will hear the story of Zaid and Zainab. If you are listening to this after November 2nd, 2018, then go back in the feed, look for episode 1-14, Zaid and Zainab, and I go into a whole lot of depth regarding this whole story. I go into the individual lives of Zaid ibn Haditha and Zainab bin Tajash, all of the different um, quotes and surahs and and um, verses related to this marriage, and it, we go into a whole lot of depth, probably more than you would ever expect it. Trust me. So I encourage you just um, go back and check on that episode and uh, everything about this incident will be all completely filled. It wasn't really an incident. All, everything about this event will be completely filled in and you'll have a whole bunch of information about it. So because I've already discussed, I'm not going to really get into much more about uh, the prophet's marriage to Zainab bin Josh. But it was definitely a major event, and it's something that you should learn about. So please go back and listen to 1-14, Zaid and Zainab. So before we get into the actual Battle of the Trent, which is what we're going to really talk about today, there's, there was one minor expedition uh, before the Battle of the Trench. This this took place in Rabi'l Awal of uh, the fifth year. The Hijra Rabi'l Awal is the third month of the Islamic calendar. Uh, there wasn't any really fi real fighting here, but the Prophet had heard some pagan forces were beginning to encroach on territory that belonged to the Muslims. It wasn't in Medina itself, a little bit outside of Medina, but it was still considered Muslim territory. So the Prophet he he gathered up his army and he led them out there. Uh, this was called um, the, this was called the Battle of Dumata Jandal. He led them out to Dumata Jandal, this area. But when he got there, no one was there, so they stuck around for a little while, but eventually returned to Medina, and not much had happened. So now let's actually get into the actual Battle of the Trench, Al-Khandak. This is also called, I guess Ghazwatul Khandak is an Arabic word for it. Um, it. It is also called the Battle of the Confederates or Ghazwatul uh, Ahzab, if my Arabic is correct. And this year is often called, the year that this took place, the fifth year of the Hijrah, is often called Amul uh, Ahzab or the Year of the Confederates. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala discusses the events of this uh, story, of this battle in Surah Al-Ahzab, chapter of the Confederates, which, which is chapter 33 of the Quran. It is named after um, this battle. And it's called the Battle of Confederates because several different groups joined each other to team up and align and ally against the Prophet and the Muslims of Medina. So it all begins in roughly... Uh, Shawal 5AH, but that's when the actual battle takes place. But there's a lot of backstory before we get to we get to the actual battle. Shawal is the 10th month of the Muslim calendar, just after Ramadan. But before the actual battle happens, there's a lot of events that lead up to the actual battle. So we're going to discuss that first. And it begins with some members from Banu Nadir meeting with some of the prominent leaders of the Quraysh, of the Quraysh in Mecca, primarily Abu Sufyan. If you remember, Banu Nadir was the Jewish tribe that had tried to kill Prophet Muhammad in the fourth year of the Hijrah. 
and the prophet found out about it and he led a siege against them and eventually they, the uh, Banu Nadir agreed to leave Medina but they had to leave most of their property behind. So some of the uh, leaders from Banu Nadir went to meet with Abu Sufyan and other leaders from the pagan Quraysh. Along with them were also several chiefs from Banu Koreda. Banu Koreda was the last Jewish tribe still in Medina. So some of, some reports say about 20 chiefs from Banu Koreda joined the leaders of Banu Nadir with the um, with meeting with the um, pagans of Quraysh, primarily led by Abu Sufyan. And so these uh, groups, these confederates, they made an agreement for a joint attack on Medina. And the Quraysh, they also brought in the Rotafan tribe, who we mentioned in the previous episode. Uh, they really had um, no love for the Muslims either. The, um, the Quraysh brought in the Rotafan tribe and um, to sweeten the pot for the Rotafan to keep them in the mix, the, um, the 20 chiefs from Banu Koreda, they promised to give Rotafan a year's worth of harvest if they help participate in this battle. And so altogether, the two Jewish tribes, Banu Nadir and Banu Koreda, they weren't going to provide any, any troops. And as a matter of fact, at this time, officially, Banu Koreda was not officially part of it. The leadership of Banu Koreda, and we'll get to this in a moment, was still sticking to their truce, with, to their agreement with Prophet Muhammad. Whereas there were certain members from Banu Koreda who go on to Mecca to meet with the Quraysh along with uh, Banu Nadir. And so the uh, Quraysh were going to provide 6,000 fighting men. The Rotafan were going to provide 4,000 fighting men for a total of two sorry for a total of 10,000 soldiers. That would that was an immense army for this period of time in the Arabian Peninsula. In fact, 10,000 soldiers was larger than the entire population of Medina. The Muslims might have been able to muster maybe a thousand or so soldiers, maybe two, maybe 2,000 if all of the hypocrites joined them as well. But the Muslim population of Medina was probably, was almost certainly less than 4,000 at this time. So this was a huge effort of being financed by the Jewish tribes of Banu Nadir primarily, and there was moral support from Banu Koreida at this time, but actually being fought by the two um, Quraysh tribes, the Quraysh Sorry, the two Arab tribes, the Quraysh and um, the Ghatafan, were the one ones providing the muscle. Now, eventually, uh, the Prophet hears about their plans. It's kind of hard to do this sort of thing, to muster an army of 10,000 people in the middle of Arabia in the 7th century without somebody finding out. Furthermore, the Prophet also had spies in Mecca. We mentioned this before. The Prophet was no fool. He had spies in Mecca. He had people, there's still some several Muslims who were stuck in Mecca who, for whatever reason, they couldn't leave. The Prophet had spies there. It, he, he found out, okay? So the Prophet found out about this. And also the Prophet was warned by some members of the Khaza'a tribe, which was aligned with the Muslims. They saw the preparations and told the Prophet about it also. So it became evident that, yes, the um, the Meccans, the Quraysh, were really getting ready for a serious push, and they were getting ready to wipe out Medina, kill everybody, destroy Medina, and stamp out Islam once and for all. So the Prophet, he called a war council of his best strategists, and they met in Medina to try to figure out how they were going to defend Medina. 
and they were certain that it was agreed almost immediately that this was going to be a defensive war. There was no way they're going to go out and and uh, like they did in Ahud and leave Medina behind and go out and meet the enemy in the field. It was obviously obvious that that was not going to happen. The Muslims were too outnumbered. They would be crushed if they went out there and met the um, Quraysh out in the field. Well, the Confederates, because it wasn't just Quraysh. So it was now about how they were going to protect Medina while they were fighting from within Medina. And so that's where the companion, the Persian companion of Prophet Muhammad, Salman al-Farisi, that's where he comes in. The people were giving different ideas, but finally Salman al-Farisi, he was from Persia. He mentioned that when he was in Persia, when uh, armies or soldiers were outnumbered, they would dig a trench around them to give themselves some breathing room and prevent their enemy from accessing them. And the prophet heard this idea and he liked it. This was a new strategy, something that the Arabs of, of this region, at least, just weren't used to. Told you, the fighting at this time was very unsophisticated. Later on now, the Muslims would, especially under the leadership of Khalid ibn Walid and later on under um, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, the Muslims would become much more sophisticated in the battle plans and the strategy and tactics. And also as they came into contact with other nations that were more advanced than them, like the Persians and like the Romans, or uh, as we call them now, the Byzantines. As the Muslims came in contact with them, they would improve and perfect their fighting and their battle tactics. But at this time, it was everything was very unsophisticated, both the Muslims and the Quraysh. And so let's discuss this man, Salman al-Farisi, just a little bit. I'm going to go to a little bit about his life. Salman al-Farisi was from the city of Isfahan, which is in modern-day uh, central Iran. And like most Persians, when he was born, he practiced the Zoroastrian religion. And this was a religion that essentially worships fire. I won't get into all the details about it, but it essentially worships fire. And Salman was actually very devoted to his faith. He was a very devoted practitioner of Zoroastrianism. And he, be, he rose to the position of uh, keeper of the flame, which presumably was a pretty high position in uh, the Zoroaster faith. But at some point in time, he uh, came by a church in Iran. Well, at this time it's Persia. He came across a church and he uh, liked what he saw inside the church. And so he converted to Christianity. And to further learn more about Christianity, he decided to move to Syria. While there were Christians in Persia, the state religion and the primary religion there was Zoroastrianism, and he wasn't going to learn much about Christianity while in Persia. So he decided to go to the lands where the uh, Christians were the dominant group. And so that brought him to uh, Syria. And when he arrived in Syria, he became just as devoted to learning Christianity as he had been about learning and studying Zoroastrianism. And so he traveled throughout Syria to several different cities, studying under one teacher after another, learning as much as he could about Christian doctrine and Christian religion. And he started to uh, didn't necessarily move up in the ranks of Christianity because they have a moving up in the ranks and uh, that system wasn't necessarily easy. But he did begin to acquire a lot of uh, knowledge about the Christian faith. And it was finally his last teacher, his last Christian teacher, 
had told him his Christian teacher was nearing death. As a matter of fact, his teacher told him that there was still one more final prophet to come, and he, it was around the time. I guess he has used the signs of uh, astrology, or whatever. Uh, he had learned that the this last prophet was going to come, and he encouraged Salman to go find this final prophet. And so he gave Salman some clues as to how he would know this was truly the final prophet. He told him that, uh, his teacher told Salman that the prophet would appear in Arabia in a swampy land with many palm trees. He also said that the, this prophet would not accept charity for himself, but he would give it to others. And he would, however, accept gifts. And also, finally, that this prophet had a seal of prophethood, a birthmark in between his shoulder blades that would um, automatically show that he was an actual prophet. So Salman was excited, but he was far away. He was way off in Syria. And what we now uh, call um, is the it is now the demilitarized zone on the border between modern day Republic of Syria and the modern day state of Israel between those two uh, nations where he was studying at this time. So he wanted to get down to Arabia, but that was not an easy thing to do. So he waited, he waited around in Syria until finally a group of Arab merchants came through and he asked to travel with the Arabs back to Medina. I'm sorry, back to Arabia, not just straight to Medina, back to Arabia. And the Arab merchants agreed and he went on down with them into Arabia. However, these Arab merchants betrayed him and they sold him to a Jewish man in a town about 175 miles north of Medina. And so um, Salman was now a slave. And so he, can, he worked for this um, Jewish uh, man uh, for a while until he was sold to another Jewish man from the uh, tribe of Banu Koreda, uh, the same tribe we were discussing earlier. And so now this new Jewish master of him of his brought him down into Medina. But at this time, of course, it was known as Yathrib. And so when Salman arrived in Yathrib and he saw the palm trees of Yathrib, he knew that he was in the right spot. And so at the time that Salman arrived in Yathrib, the Prophet ﷺ was still preaching in Mecca. However, Salman did not hear anything, hear anything about him because he was a slave, basically, and his, he was being worked to the bone by his master. However, one day while he was working, he overheard his master talking about um, a group of people in Medina who had pledged allegiance to this prophet in Mecca and had actually gone out to meet him. So this is an indication that Salman first heard about the prophet when the prophet was making his hijrah, making his migration with Abu Bakr to Medina. This is the first time that Salman hears about it. But once he hears it, he immediately knows that this is the person that his teacher back in Syria was telling him about. And so Salman wanted to, of course, test to see if this man Muhammad really was the prophet that his teacher had foretold. And remember, his teacher had given him certain signs to look for. So later that evening, after his work was done, Salman al-Farisi, he snuck away and brought some food as charity to the prophet. The prophet has, had just arrived. He was just a little bit outside of Medina in what, we, what is now Masjid al-Quba, uh, what would become Masjid al-Quba later on. So he went out, out to um, Masjid al-Quba, wasn't a masjid yet, but it would eventually become there. Went out to Quba to meet the prophet. 
and he offered this food to the prophet as charity. So the prophet accepted the food, but then he gave it to his companions, but did not eat any of it. This was the first sign that his teacher had, was really the second sign. The first sign was being in the swampy land with palm trees. He was already there in Yathrib. The second sign was that the prophet would uh, not eat charity, but he would give it to others. And so when he saw the when he saw Prophet Muhammad وسلم, give away the food to his companions, that uh, helped to confirm Salman's suspicions that this really was the prophet. But he wasn't sure yet, and so he waited a few days, and then he gave the prophet a gift of food. He said the last one was charity. He told the prophet, this paraphrase, and he told the prophet that the last one I gave you was charity, but this is a gift from me to you. And this time, the prophet did eat it. He invited his companions along too, but he did eat as well. So now this was the third sign for Salman, because remember at first, he, um, the, his teacher had told him that the uh, prophet that was to come, he would not eat from charity, but he would eat a gift if you gave it to him. And that was uh, something that Salman witnessed. And so now he was even more convinced, but he still wanted to see the seal of the prophet. He still wanted to see this birthmark to see if the prophet carried the seal. And so a few days after that, he joined the prophet while they were in a funeral procession. And the prophet seemed to have been wearing like a loose cloak around his shoulders. And Salman kept trying to strain his neck, trying to see if this if the cloak was slip low enough to see the mark between the prophet's shoulder blades and the prophet saw Salman trying to see it and so he knew what Salman was trying to see and so the prophet took off the cloak and showed Salman his back and with that Salman was convinced and he immediately converted to Islam but even though Salman had become Muslim, he was still a slave. And he was not able to just immediately go and join Prophet Muhammad just yet. And so for this reason, because he was still a slave, Salman al-Farisi missed out on both the battles of Badr and the battle of Ahud. His master just wouldn't let him go. Finally, Salman, he asked his master what would be the price for his freedom. His master told him uh, 30 palm trees and 40 okia of gold. I try my best to estimate what, uh, what an okia is, and I estimate that 40 okia of gold, and my calculations may be wrong, but I believe 40 okia gold is about 700 grams of gold. So, you know, calculate as you will if you want to. You can do your own research if you think you may have something better, but Allah knows best. So Salman, he told the prophet what his master would need in order to set him free. So the prophet, he didn't have the gold just yet, but he immediately went to his companions and started asking them to donate palm tree shoots in order to help uh, Salman buy his freedom. And so the companions began to donate palm trees. Everyone couldn't give um, 30 palm trees right then and there, but altogether they were able to collect 30 palm tree shoots that Salman could collect to give to his master. And then later on, um, a lump of gold came in from one of the expeditions. The Muslims were still going out there fighting and stuff. And they brought back some um, some gold, a lump of gold as part of the booty of war. And so the Prophet Sallallahu he gave this gold to Salman and told him to wait to see if it would be enough. And if it would be enough. And sure enough, it was ex exactly the 700 grams of gold that his master had wanted. And so between the 30 trees that the companions had donated and the lump of gold from the expedition, Salman was finally able to purchase his freedom and he joined the Prophet just a little bit before the events of uh, the Battle of the Trench.
And so now that brings us right back to the Battle of the Trench. And so now we have several groups joining in. We have uh, Banu, uh, um, Banu Nadir, the uh, Jewish tribe that had been expelled from Medina. You also have some members of Banu Qurayda, but not all of them. And then you also have, of course, the pagan Quraysh and, of course, the pagan Ghatafan. And so now there's one more piece to be added. We mentioned, of course, uh, some of uh, prominent chiefs from Banu Qurayda had joined Banu Nadir at this meeting in Mecca. But Banu um, Qurayda, in, in and of itself, they had not fully committed to this allegiance against the Muslims. Banu Qurayda, like all the other Jewish tribes of Medina before all this had happened, they had signed a covenant with the Prophet agreeing to help protect Medina from any external enemies. And the man who signed this uh, covenant with the Prophet was uh, a man named Ka'ab ibn Asad al-Qurazi. He was, Qurazi as his name indicates, he was a member of the uh, Banu Qurayda. He was most likely Jewish, from Banu Qurayda, and he wanted to stick to his agreement. Regardless of what those 20 chiefs had done who gone to Mecca, as far as he was concerned, he was going to stick to his agreement. So one of the chiefs from Banu Nadir, the tribe that had been expelled from Medina, his name was Huyay ibn Akhtab, he went to meet Ka'ab ibn Asad at, their, at his fortress in Medina. Uh, and Ka'ab at first refused to let Huye in. Ka'ab closed his doors. He was saying, Muhammad has been fair with me, have an agree with, agreement with him. I know you're coming here for, here for no good. Um, Huye hadn't even presented the idea. Of course, Huye was coming there to try to convince Ka'ab ibn Asad to join the Confederates against the Muslims. But Ka'ab, at first at least, wasn't having any of that. He closed the fortress doors, refused to entertain anything that Hoye was at, was asking him. But Hoye kept pestering him and pestering him. And finally, he insulted Ka'ab, saying that only reason you won't open these doors is because you don't want to share your food with me. That was an insult to Ka'ab. And so finally, he opened his doors reluctantly. He said, okay, come on in, but don't tell me nothing about this conspiracy, or this confederation you have against the prophet. I don't want anything to do with that. Chances are he didn't call him the prophet, he called him Muhammad, but still, Ka'ab didn't want anything to do with it. But Hoye wasn't done. He just kept on pestering him and needling him and asking him and asking and asking. And he slowly broke down Ka'ab's resistance. Like I said, Ka'ab didn't want to do any of this. He had an agreement with the prophet. He didn't want to be seen as a dishonorable person for breaking his covenant, breaking his promise. The prophet and Ka'ab had been on good, had, had been at least on good terms, if not friendly terms, at least they had been on good terms. He quoted, he, he was quoted as saying the prophet had been fair to him all this time. He did not want to betray the prophet, but Ka'ab kept on him, kept on him. And then he, he uh, started laying out all these promises, promised um, Ka'ab that the, uh, there are a whole bunch of confederates. They had, they had gathered this overwhelming force of 10,000 soldiers. He told Ka'ab that the Arabs had promised that they're not going to abandon this mission until Muhammad was dead and all of his followers were dead along with him. And then he told Ka'ab that even if the Arabs abandoned them and, and uh, gave up their promise and, and betrayed them and turned back and went back to Mecca, Hoye promised Ka'ab that if that happened, Hoye and the uh, Banu Nadir, they will come to the fortress and help defend Banu Qurayda from the Prophet and his soldiers. 
And when he made that promise, that finally moved Kaab over to the other side. And Kaab agreed to violate his trust, violate his covenant with Prophet Muhammad وسلم, and turned against the Muslims, turned against the Prophet and sided with Huyay and the Quraysh and the rest of the Confederates. And unfortunately for Kaab ibn Asad, this was this would turn out to be a very devastating, horrible decision by him that would ruin his people. And we will get into the actual events of the Battle of the Trench, Ghazwat al-Khandaq, in the next episode of Islamic History Exclusive. Until then, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.